Hey, thanks for joining us online, wherever you're at across the city, across the state, or beyond. We love that you're joining us. And a special greeting to the women at the Cheetah Correctional Facility in Fond du Lac. We heard from your chaplain that you guys have been watching us online. That is great. We're humbled by that. We are so glad to be doing church together with you guys. We love you. And it's a great time to join us as we're starting a new nine-week series in one of the great Old Testament books, part of wisdom literature. It's called Ecclesiastes, written some 3,000 almost years ago, and yet so modern and apropos for our day today. It's written by this teacher. You could call him a preacher. He's this gatherer of an assembly, and the context here is to teach the people of God. It's like the preacher preaching a sermon to the people of God. And the preacher begins and ends the book with this repeated phrase making the point that life under the sun, we'll talk about that phrase in a bit, is pointless. It doesn't make any sense. You've been there, right? Here's how it goes. Chapter 1, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So in one verse, chapter 1, verse 2, we've already got four of the 38 times. It's meaningless, this word. This word speaks of, of, of a breath, of, of a vapor, of, of a mist, of like a morning fog that's there and then dissipates, of smoke rising mysteriously out of the fire. It's like our breath on a cold fall morning, right? We, and we can, we can see our breath. But, but it, it's reminding us not just about the temporary and fleeting nature of life, but also of the paradox, because it looks like it has substance, that smoke over the fire. You go to grab it, and there, there's nothing there. It's, it's unpredictable, this paradox. It, it's meaningless. And we run into it all the time, even more so at a time like this in, in a pandemic, in a humorous way. Henry, my three-year-old grandson, and I have, have run into the meaninglessness of life as we have had our recent fishing jaunts to the local pond. And so Henry loves to fish, and that's one of our favorite pastimes. And so we were out fishing at the pond, and we, we got a new pack of, of earthworms from Canada, and they were looking fat and juicy, and Henry loves worms. Hooked up the, uh, the first hook, we cast it out there, and as soon as that line hit the water. That bobber went down before you could even think about setting the hook. And I went to Henry, uh-oh, because nothing else was happening. Uh-oh. And it happened four times in a row. We got clean. What that means is that fish, sneaky little fish, he got the worm before we could set the hook. Now, you've got that experience. And then a little later in our fishing, we had one lucky worm. We caught four fish in a row on the same word. This is the absurdity of life. It's meaningless. One time, it's great. The next time, you know you get skunked. We know that. Promoted last year at work. Furloughed. Now we lost our job. We were heading over heels in love. And now where are we going? The divorce court. What is this hatred that I'm feeling and receiving? We see it all the time. Just this last weekend, six beautiful children who should be enjoying running through a, a sprinkler on a hot summer day. Their lives were, were snuffed out. They were gunned down like Ryota DeMarco Giles, an eight-year-old in, in Alabama, walking the local mall. Or little Natalia, 
a seven-year-old playing in the backyard with a lot of other kids on the west side of Chicago in the Austin neighborhood. Three guys jump out of a car, gunshots start flying, and, and sweet little Natalia gets shot in the head, and she's gone. Just the other day, my sister called to ask us to pray for a family, a missionary family in Africa whose 15-year-old son died in this, just you can't make sense out of it, accident. Peyton, the oldest of six kids, was in his room with his adopted African brother. They're horsing around their plane. He's got a hammock set up. He's up in the hammock. Chi-Chi goes out of the room and comes back and, and finds Peyton lying just still. He's not moving on the concrete. He thinks he's playing a joke. He goes to move him. There's no movement. They believe what happened is his hands got caught and twisted in the fabric of his hammock and he fell out of the hammock and he landed on his chin right on the hard concrete and it snapped his spinal cord and he was instantly killed. And we hear the echoes, the echoes of Solomon. Meaningless, meaningless, vanity of vanities. The conclusion doesn't just come from violence or injustice, tragedy, or even a pandemic. You can have it all and yet feel empty, right? You can have all kinds of friends and be desperately longing for intimacy. You can have achieved all of your life goals. And as the world measures success, you are a rock star, but you are desperately unhappy and you have no clue to why you're unhappy. As Hemingway said, life is a dirty trick, a short trip from nothingness to nothingness. Or as Carrie Livgen wrote, lead singer of Kansas, dust in the wind, right? All we are is dust in the wind. Everything is dust in the wind. So the book begins with these words. Verse one, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, there's many takes on who this author is. I believe that it is King Solomon, the one who followed King David, his son. He was king in Jerusalem. He was the wisest of all men. So pursuing wisdom and having great wealth, we know all those things to be true about him. Others think it's a later king within the Davidic line. Others still, later in Israel's history, taking on the Solomon-like persona to teach these wise sayings. Well, when you look at verse 12, we see the reiteration of verse 1. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Makes sense, because the scripture says he was the wisest man who ever lived. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I, be I believe this is Solomon writing at the end of his life. In chapter 2, the teacher here starts to talk about all his accomplishments. And let me tell you what, Solomon was an accomplished man. Not only did he build the temple for God, his own palaces, but he built gardens and pools. He had flocks and silver. They said the silver was as, as, as common as stone and rubble around Jerusalem. He had singers and entertainers, and he had women. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us 700 wives and 300 concubines, these very women from these other places who worshipped other gods who led his heart away from God. 
And so I believe this is Solomon at the end of his life. The one who said, look, I've kept my heart from no pleasure and I've had the Bill Gates kind of bank account to pursue it all. I'm going to tell you that this is where you find pleasure and this is where you can't find pleasure. This is how you find meaning and this is where you cannot find meaning. These are the truthful words that'll set the record straight. It's not in your work, your career, chasing pleasure. It's not in trying to get and gain every bit of knowledge. Each of these pursuits will disappoint you. And so he's writing as the convener, the preacher, the teacher of God's people to God's people. Helpful for a skeptic. Helpful for an agnostic. If you're an atheist, this is great stuff for you. But primarily the audience is for us, the people of God, who maybe like Solomon made a good start, but we've lost our way. Maybe we've got the wrong expectations for life and what this world holds. And maybe we need to tether our hearts and our minds to the truth of God's word and the offer of his grace. So he wants them to know, and he wants us to know 38 times that it's meaningless. But what he's talking about, what he's drawing in terms of a context here, life under the sun. That's another repeated phrase, 28 times, 28 times. And it speaks about doing life without God in view. Under the sun refers to thinking and behaving and pursuing life as if God weren't part of the category and our, our lives at all. It's lowering our gaze so that all we see is the stuff of this earth. We don't see God seated in the heavens ruling over all things. He's rendered obsolete in our quest for meaning. He is sidestepped for our search for happiness. He's forgotten when we wrestle with the ultimate questions of life. It's like, how do we get here? Why am I here? Where am I going? And that is how Solomon had lived. And this is the truth that he's observing. And now he wants to share it. He wants to share it like a parent, warning our kids, be careful man, I made these mistakes. You don't have to make, you can learn from me or you can learn the hard way by yourself. But I paid the dumb taxes for you too, so learn from me. I remember the times that we'd go visit mom, Lori's mom and dad. We just are gonna be celebrating her home going. It was just a few weeks ago that Lori's mom went home to be with Jesus. But when I think about our visits there up in Roseville, Minnesota, We'd have these sweet times together. Mom would just love on us and serve us. And at the very end, there are some traditions, and uh, this is one of them, that she'd pack this great lunch for us because we'd have a long trip back to Illinois. And uh, then she'd have us pose for a family picture on the, on the stoop of the house because that, you know, you got to have the family picture. And then especially if it was winter or getting close to winter or just on the backside of winter, we'd get the black ice warning. Hey, guys, remember watch out for the black eyes. We'd kind of smile and chuckle, especially the Brit. We would get it. We'd get it. That's what Solomon's doing. Like a parent, he's saying, man, watch out. And there's a lot of black ice out there. You, you, you think it's nothing. You don't even see it. But man, this pursuit of wealth, this pursuit of pleasure, sex, money, all these different things. Hey, watch out. Man, before you know it, your car's going to flip. You're going to go careening out right into a ditch, headlong into a tree. It's going to ruin you. Watch out. And the way he does this, the way he teaches this is 
is, is like a shepherd using a goad. In chapter 12, verse 11, we read this. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collective sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. What, what he's saying is this book in its teaching is meant to prod us. It's to pierce our side, if you will, to take the stubbornness of our lives like that stubborn ox and move us along in the right direction towards the right path. He, he wants the truths that he's sharing to be embedded and fixed in our minds like a, a nail driven into a board so that we go in the right direction. And he's telling us that, by the way, these are my words. These were given me by the one shepherd. Many of your translations will have that shepherd word capitalized, rightfully understanding this allusion to one of the titles for God in the Old Testament. Remember Psalm 23, Solomon's dad opens the psalm with these words, the Lord is my shepherd. Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel speaking on God's behalf tells us that God says, you had shepherds, they've abandoned their job. I am your shepherd, Israel. He says, these words that I'm telling you aren't just from my experience. These words come from God. They're his words. All of them true. Listen. And where is he pointing us to? To a relationship with this creator God. To fear him. Now, this answer is found throughout the book, but it comes loud and clear at the end. Five times we'll see it. But here it is at the end of the book. Chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. And so what he's going to be doing, you guys, through this book, and it's going to be off depressing, and it's going to be very much like, didn't we talk about this already? Because it's not a straight line kind of argument line of thinking. It's like this circular staircase where he keeps coming back to things like work and wisdom and wealth and pleasure and all these different things. What he's doing is he's trying to deconstruct the false hopes that we have in the things that promise meaning, significance, happiness, but they can't deliver. And so what he's going to do when at five different times in the book, there's this shaft of light in the midst of this dark, depressing poetry sometimes. He's going to lift our gaze to see above the sun, to see the God who desires a relationship with us. And so what he's doing is he's saying, you guys, I'm prodding you in the right direction, but I know this, the force and the siren call is strong. The temptation, the lure, the current of this all is going to suck you in. And so I'm I just going to keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it, because I don't want you to suffer the same sorrow and misery that I did. It all reminds me of the sad story that came out of Fort Worth, Texas, a number of years ago. Tony Maldonado was the first officer on the scene. He reported to the Fort Worth Star that when he jumped into the city fountain, the suction was so strong that it literally, he said, sucked my socks right off my feet. Lauren was age eight. She slipped into the large fountain. It was not her intent. Her friend, Juan Trice, 11, tried to save her. 
Her older brother, Christopher, 13, tried to save them both. And finally, Myron Duke, age 35, Lauren and Christopher's dad jumped in to save the three. Witnesses say they saw him come up and down three or four times. And then he was gone. They went there to play because the pool in their hotel was closed. This is the stuff of life under the sun that echoes the refrain of Solomon's meaningless. It's all utterly meaningless. It reminds us of the lyrics, wait for it, in the brilliant Broadway musical Hamilton when Miranda wrote, death doesn't discriminate between sinners and saints. Because Myron Duke and those three kids were in Fort Worth, Dallas for one purpose. They were going to a Sunday school convention. They're going to learn about God and about the Bible. And those strong pumps remind us of the dangers of being sucked under by the alluring forces of this world. We're the ones that need to hear this. I know you want to send this link to somebody, but we need to hear this, starting with me. Our behavior betrays our beliefs. We act often like this world is all that there is. We think that this is heaven and expect heaven's best today. We're confused when our faith in a sovereign God, sovereignly in control over all things, collides with the absurdities of life, like Peyton hitting his chin on the concrete floor in his 15th year of his promising life. We need to know how not to live. And that's the unique contribution that this book makes like no other book in the Bible. This is saying, this is how not to live. Solomon's saying, I'm the poster child for how not to live. that we might learn how to live in a way that pleases God and truly satisfies, preparing us for that day when God makes all things right, coming back to bring in perfect justice and peace. We need to learn about injustice and gain confidence in God's. We need to learn about what work can bring and what it can't bring, about the pleasures, about sex, about status, about oppression, about power and privilege. It's all right here in this book. And it couldn't be more pertinent to as we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic when we're going, you know, the words we come up with, this is crazy. This is crazy. Well, this is just our language for this is meaningless. It's absurd. We're right there in the midst of it. God has our full attention, or does he? Solomon comes to us. And in verses 1 through 11, He's reminding us that life under the sun is meaningless. It doesn't make sense. It's absurd. And the reason is because our work is meaningless. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Work is meaningless. Leonard Wolf, at age 88, this 
brilliant intellectual over in Britain, the founder of the Bloomsbury Group, this group of intellectual writers and philosophers and artists. He said this about his life and specifically of his work. This is the husband of Virginia Woolf. I see clearly that I've achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past 57 years would be exactly the same as if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memorandas. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through 150,000 to 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Wow. He says that, Solomon does, not only because work is hard, but our hard work ultimately doesn't change anything. Nothing changes. The sun still rises and it sets. The wind still goes around its circuit. The process of hydration continues from evaporation to the rain, to the flow into the sea and back again. It's meaningless. And time will eventually erase everything we do and all that we accomplish. No one's going to know, even though the mountains will still be there. In verses 8 through 11, he says, this meaninglessness leads to weariness. Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye, our eye, never has enough of seeing, nor the ear, it's full of hearing. We're never satisfied with what we see. What we hear, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And so here we are living life in this twisted, crooked world that's been cursed, not just by God, it's been cursed by our own rebellion against God. And so it's thorns and thistles, it's the sweat of our brow, Genesis 3, and it's dust to dust we return. And as hard as we work, there's no satisfaction. Francois Mouriac, the winner of the 1952 Nobel Peace Prize, said this, you cannot imagine such a torture as this. Here's Moriak's torture. To have had nothing out of life. I mean, why would a guy who's won the Nobel Peace Prize say that he has had nothing out of life? But that's the absurdity of life, to win the Nobel Peace Prize and feel like you've got nothing out of life. And to await nothing but death. And to feel that there may be nothing beyond this world, that no explanation exists, that the word of the enigma will never be given. The puzzle will never be solved. Solomon's weariness is Moriach's torture. And the coup de grace here in verse 11 is, the weariness comes from the simple fact that we won't even be remembered for all of our pursuits and all of our hard works and all of our good deeds. We're not even going to be remembered. So let me drive it home. You have eight great-grandparents. Give me one of their names. Huh, that's good. You got one of them. Yeah, you've been on that Ancestry.com. I know you have. All right, what did they do? Where did they live? Who did they marry? What do you know about the things of their life? And in short order, we're going to be the great-grandparent. Resting under some oak tree, 
And maybe somebody chases down one day, knowing very, very little, if anything, about us. Life under the sun is meaningless. It leads to weariness, and it ultimately brings great grief and sorrow, verses 12 through 18. And he ends that section, much of which we've read. Well, we'll just pick it up in 16. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I and also madness and folly, but I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. It's elusive. You can't get it. And so he says this in conclusion, chapter 1, verse 18, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Nothing changes. Nothing satisfies. Nothing soothes the sorrows of life. Life under the sun is meaningless. It wears us out. And it brings great sorrow. Maybe that's where you're at right now. Or maybe you're full of promise. Some today have lived under the sun. You, you've done the Solomon quest, right? And you're going, amen, Solomon, you preach it. Preacher, you preach it. Tell the folk. Warn them. Tell them about the black eyes. Others of us are going, well, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I've heard the warning. But I kind of, you know what? I kind of want to. I want to know for myself because it sure looks good. It sounds good. I think I'm going to chase it. The career, the money, the academics, the leisure, the pleasure, the sex, whatever. Solomon says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't forget God. And then some of us right now, are, we're not just in the midst of thinking about pursuing it. We're right in the middle of it, and we've come to that shocking realization that is captured by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger's lyric, I tried and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. Believe Solomon's diagnosis. He's had the disease. He knows the cure. Take his medicine. Fear God. Come to know him. Surrender your life to him. Take him at his word. Follow him. Trust him. And in that, find contentment and joy and peace. In this twisted, broken world we call home. And then the hope of a better day when the Prince of Peace comes to make all things right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we realize that you are our only hope for that relationship with God. You are the one who jumped into this meaningless, vaporous existence called the earth in real time in history. You experienced weariness as you took on our flesh and even more so our sin. And you are called the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, so that even in this world, we could know joy and contentment and peace. 
And so we pray that you'd use your word like that goad to steer us away from the cliffs that we're heading over. We pray that your love would call back those who've fallen deep away from you like Solomon and that you'd help them understand that there isn't anything they've done. There isn't anything they could do that would separate them from your love. Your arms are open. Receive them by your grace. May they experience your freeing forgiveness. And then for those who are deeply lost in the midst of the pursuit, Lord, I pray that they bump up to that brick wall this week to realize that this ain't working. They turn to you, the lover and maker of their souls. We pray this for your glory and for the good of a watching world. In Jesus' name, amen.